The glory of humanity is the difference, the differentiation, individuality of each person, and the fact that each individual is unique and irreplaceable, which, which makes each individual precious, precious, precious. I'd like to talk to you this afternoon about two classes of Americans, and it may not be the two classes you think of, but nonetheless, there are two distinct classes in America, and we have to break up. Break up. Break up. Break up. You don't get freedom peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being by any means necessary. Welcome to the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast, a Utah-based program that focuses on ideas, politics, culture, and the current events going on in the world around us, whether locally or globally. I'm your host, David Iglesias. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, David Iglesias, um, and I am here today with... Once again, another fantastic guest. This is Kyle Anzalone from the antiwar.com website, as well as the Libertarian Institute. Am I missing any other places that you are working with? No, I also host Conflicts of Interest, but that is through the Institute. So anybody who wants to find my work, just check out uh, antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute. Awesome. Yeah, and do go check out Conflicts of Interest. That's like a day-by-day briefing on everything that's going on. And that's exactly why I wanted to have Kyle on today to talk about um, the Russia-Ukraine situation. I haven't, it's been, let's see, what has it been just under two months now that we're going on with the war officially. Um, so I haven't done official, a like former episode covering everything. I did a minor episode giving some updates, basically reading through some antiwar.com articles that um, you had written, Kyle. So today, I want to try to give people a basic feeling of what is the U.S.'s role been since February 24th, um, since, you know, there's been the conflicts and then some peace talks, negotiations, and, you know, just a lot of different things moving on the ground and, and new headlines breaking every single day. Kyle, you have been following these, all these stories since that has all unfolded right you this is basically like your full-time job yeah no it is my full-time job to cover this kind of stuff so uh most of the time it's at the libertarian institute one day a week i do write at antiwar.com as well and yeah so but I've been trying my best to cover the war. In some cases, you know, I'm I'm talking about the weapons shipments that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. Other times, uh, especially during the you know the first initial invasion, uh, myself and Will Porter were doing a lot of you know this is what's going on in this city on this day kind of analysis and breakdowns. Um, I, I mean, I, I've been really watching this very closely. Uh, there was a, one one of our articles, in fact, was about. Russia seizing the largest nuclear facility in Europe. Uh, 
And I was, I had the live stream up and watched the tanks roll up to the nuclear facility and the, you know, exchange break out. And, you know, there's some people saying that, oh, you know, the, the reactors are hit and things like that. But, you know, me and Will are able to pull up a map and look and figure out where the administrative buildings are versus where the reactors are. And, you know, we were able to do a pretty good breakdown of that. And there, were, there wasn't any fires or breakout of anything happening at the reactors. There was a fire at an administrative building that was put out, the IAEA, the International UN Watchdog. That's typically pretty favorable to the U.S. narrative on things even came out and said, yeah, you know, there, there wasn't any kind of that that stuff going on. And so me and Will had the analysis all right from the very beginning. And we do try to do a very good job of just like nailing down the hard news. And, you know, this is what we know what's going on. This is what side A claims. This is what side B claims. But, you know, here's the evidence. And so you could draw your own conclusions. But typically, there is a direction the evidence points. And, you know, we don't want to tell people what to think, but at least, you know, give give that the most important facts on everything. Yeah, no. And, and that's one thing I've really appreciated about reading all the articles and pieces you guys put out is it's very clear about, okay, you know, the U.S. and the NATO allies are claiming this, while Russia and their uh, representatives are saying this. These are the reports we see, but you know, there's nothing that's blatantly just saying this is how you should believe the situation. Um, I hadn't thought about talking about this, but since you bring it up, it is interesting. I do remember, you know, there was the major concerns about the nuclear reactor that had been seized. Is there anything new or like ongoing out at the moment that we know of that's changed or significant with that whole situation? No, uh, I know Russia was talking about there possibly being. Um, military nuclear activity of some kind that Ukraine was looking into. They haven't turned up any evidence of this. I believe that Russia is still holding one Ukrainian nuclear facility, although they withdrawn from other areas, particularly. Uh, if you look at a map of Ukraine, you'll see uh, uh, Kiev kind of in the center along the, the major river that runs north to south, you know, the, the nice blue line in the map, you see Kiev right there. Mm -hmm. And to north of that is uh, Chernobyl, which is, you know, the, the site of the famous uh, reactor meltdown. And there, Russia did take that site at one point, but apparently they've even withdrawn from there. So um, I don't think there's a lot of major news coming out at this point about the nuclear facilities. It seems to have uh, settled down in those areas. Now, I, I do think the coming fighting in Ukraine is going to be in the east, uh, not so much in the, the center or the, the west of the country. And so that, you know, maybe could bring some fighting again into play around that nuclear site. But I don't think at this point there's any reason uh, to think that's going to happen. But, you know, who knows how this war is going to develop. There's, uh, you know, a lot of moving pieces going on here still. Right, exactly. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned, because I didn't know that they there was reports of them pulling out. And that's funny. It kind of gets into some of the, the points I wanted to cover is, it's funny when you see that as soon as they roll in or there's any you know belief that they're rolling in, the US will, the Western media will flip out and they will blast it all over the media outlets. But when they start to pull out and there's maybe not as much hype as they, they made it seem like there was, it, they don't do a very you know solid job on clearing that up and saying, okay, it looks like this is maybe not something we need to worry about. They just leave it up in the air and just leave all this confusion for people to believe, you know, oh my God, you know, Putin is rolling into all of Ukraine. He's taken over the nuclear reactors. He's destroying civilian structures. Just, there's not a lot of clear 
um, information coming out. And that was actually a piece that you and I think Dave DeCamp were talking about just last week was how there was a, I think it was an NBC article. Caitlin Johnstone wrote about it. She's another anti-war writer, for those who don't know, regarding the misinformation or the the poor quality of information coming from the U.S. intelligence community. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, Dave actually wrote up the, Dave DeCamp wrote up this article for antiwar.com. If anybody doesn't follow Dave DeCamp on Twitter, uh, at DeCampDave, he's fantastic. He does like three times the amount of uh, writing that I do. It's it's incredible. So Dave uh, outlined that the United States uh, government has admitted that they are passing along like low confidence, unconfirmed intelligence and portraying it as fat. And, you know, this has been done directly by the president, Joe Biden, when they talked about moving chemical weapons into Russia. And they're portraying this as information warfare against Russia. Of course, uh, and I think one analyst said they're trying to like get inside Putin's head. Now that's kind of disturbing, right? Like, you know, we're 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 young men. We you know play games and try to get inside of like you know the guy across from you his head. What does that mean? You want them to act irrationally, right? Like that's the point of game in their head is so they make a mistake. Now, I don't think you actually want Putin to make a mistake here because we're talking about potential nuclear warfare. I think that you want to. Uh, you know, have as clear of a relationship as possible with Putin right now. So both sides understand the intentions of the other. Again, you know, we're talking uh, the two largest nuclear arsenals on the planet uh, right now. The U.S. is pumping weapons into Ukraine. This is something that Russia has said could potentially, you know, make the U.S. a belligerent in the war in, you know, Russian eyes. This is also a discussion that happened in the White House. There are White House officials who feel the amount of weapons that the U.S. is providing to Ukraine is, you know, makes us a, a party and a member to the war. And you can also look at historical examples like uh, with World War II and the Lend-Lease Act, where the U.S. was uh, dumping all these weapons into Europe. And, you know, from the side of, you know, like Germany, it did make the U.S. Uh, involved in the war. And uh, this, you know, happened again with World War I and the Lusitania, where they're moving weapons on that. And the weapons shipment was eventually hit. And so while you may not want to admit it, weapons shipments do make you a party to the war. And in you know, some respects, uh, when you're a party to the war, you know, the, the where the weapons are directly doesn't matter if it's three miles into Poland or three miles into Ukraine, those, you know, weapons from the viewpoint of Russia are going to be used to kill Russians, right? And so, um, you know, this could draw and bring a larger war. And, you know, you, maybe you personally may not agree with what I'm saying right here. And you might think that, you know, weapons shipments, especially the ones going into Ukraine, uh, don't amount to making the U.S. a party in this war, but it really doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what Putin and Russia thinks, right? Because you, you really don't get a say on this. We're talking about nuclear weapons here. Biden ain't going to call you and ask you if we should set them off. You know what I mean? He's going to react to what Putin's doing. Right. And so that's all I think very important here, understanding the context of what the U.S. is doing. They're deliberately trying to provoke and uh, manipulate Putin and to get him to see like a different kind of reality or something like that than what's actually going on. Uh, they gave reports saying that Putin had like isolated himself and wasn't listening to anybody and that his subordinates were afraid to bring and tell him the truth. And there's no evidence for that. They were just saying, oh, 
well, the invasion we think is going poorly. And since Putin isn't doing anything to change his strategy, which is what we think we would do in that case. So that means that we think that Putin's subordinates must not be telling them the war is going well. And that's why he isn't changing his strategy. Like there's all these assumptions, like any single one of those things could be wrong. That makes their whole thing completely invalidated and stupid. And yet they're telling it to the American people. And what do the American people hear? Oh my God, Putin is irrational. And that increases all the US support for uh, Ukraine. And I'm sure it's you know part of the narrative that's driving an increasing number of people in Sweden and Finland to desire joining NATO. Look, Finland has an 800 plus mile long border with uh, Russia. And NATO just announced over the weekend that they wanna put enough troops in every single NATO border state to prevent a Russian invasion of that state. So they want to have enough troops in Latvia to prevent Russia from invading, in Lithuania to prevent Russia from invading, in Poland to prevent Russia from invading, right? This, these are all troops that are essentially stacked up on Russia's border. And now you're going to add Finland and its 800 mile long border with Russia. And all these, you know, Baltic states are pretty close to the Northern Russian population centers like St. Petersburg and stuff like that. And, and Russia is going to view this as a real threat and a real military buildup along its borders because that's what it is. NATO is going to uh, pretend it's defensive and they're going to wage an information war not against Russia because Russia has their own intelligence. They have their own media. You know, they have their own propaganda systems and their government has their own flaws and problems and all of that. But the White House's information war is not meant for Vladimir Putin. It's meant for me and you to consume. And that's why they're telling us that Putin is moving chemical weapons into place, that Putin is uh, going to China to try to get weapons and more support from China, that uh, that uh, Russia is you know, just massacring people and Putin is isolated and crazy and won't listen to anybody and people are afraid to bring him the truth. And they want you to believe that he's this crazy Stalin-esque figure or Hitler-esque figure that just loses his mind all the time, screams at people, assassinates, you know, people who bring him bad news. And so nobody will do it. And you just think he's too damn crazy to deal with. And so just like it's Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Bashar al-Assad or the Houthis or the Palestinians, Hamas, Hezbollah, whoever they want to make the enemy, these people are uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, Castro, uh, Maduro in Venezuela. All these people are just so crazy they're bad to their own people. They're waging aggressive wars and, you know, they're putting lives in danger. And so we have to do something about it. And a lot of it is just simply not true. Now, Russia is waging an aggressive war in Ukraine, uh, but, you know, I could oppose that war, but also see the rational calculation that Russia and Putin made uh, to make that decision, you know, based off NATO expansion and everything like that that's happened over the past 30 years. But um, uh, maybe I lost a little bit of your original no, question there. No, no, you're good. I mean, I think that's a really good summation or gives a good feeling of, you know, what the role of the U.S. has been playing. I mean, it's like you said, there's what came to my mind is, you know, when they put border troops on the border, let's say, you know, like with Finland and, and Poland, it was Sweden, sorry, this is Finland and Sweden, right? Those are the new those ones. Those would be the yeah. Those are the states that that uh, want to. a U.S. A, yeah, a U.S. official just told the Times of London that they had spent Finland to uh, make a bid for membership in mid June, right. and then Sweden to follow soon after. 
And uh, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg has said that, that all 30 members are on board and has mm -hmm. hinted that the alliance could speed up the entrance process to allow you know these countries to join in a short period of time. Right. The only reservation that's been expressed among that that I picked up from the Finnish uh, government was that they, they were concerned that they would make a bid for NATO, then it would take years to join, and in the meantime, Russia would make a whole bunch of threats and everything like that. So, gotcha. um, and I think now public polling shows sixty percent of Finns uh, support uh, NATO membership, which oh is God. up from like nineteen or it was either nineteen or twenty nine percent in twenty seventeen. So that's a pretty significant turnaround. Now, yeah, again, you know, this information war is you know meant for me and you, but also anybody in the West in general. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what the Finnish and the Swedish government are saying that the security situation uh, Europe has changed entirely. Russia wasn't the neighbor that we thought it was, and now we had to act differently. Although I think Russia has been very clear about its intentions from like 20, 2007 on. Like yeah. this really shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone. Right. And it and it's exactly that point that I was going to say is, you know, when they want to consider putting the more troops and weapons and arms over onto these borders right next to Russia, you know, they paint it as the narrative. Oh, it's defensive. And you can make that simple argument and someone might be like, oh, yeah, OK, whatever. But it really doesn't take to it takes no time at all to just consider and think, wait, on that same the other side of that same coin. You know, if Russia is understanding that there's more weapons and more troops and more hostilities approaching their border, then that's going to that possibly and very likely is going to just antagonize them more. And it's the same. You just have to paint it on in a different light, but it's the same situation. And in reality, it's like you said, I we've come out of the, You know, we just finished Afghanistan. Like, who would have thought that we would have finished Afghanistan after 20 years and then immediately rolled into potentially World War Three? But the problem is, you know, we spent 20 years fighting in the Middle East where, you know, a lot of our foes may not be the nuclear powerhouse that Russia is. And so we have this idea that we can just prolong the wars and we can just drag it out and do all these things. Whereas Russia, it's like you made the point, they are a nuclear force that I think actually surpasses the U.S. And so it's whether or not Putin is insane or crazy, you got to approach it completely different in a way that's going to lead to every possible avoidance of, of a nuclear war and it does not seem in my opinion with you know as again the u.s just admitted that they are they're putting out low quality if not false information and we saw that from the very beginning that was my concern was you know we saw these stories of snake island the ghost of kiev and all these stories that just turned out to be complete you know lies or or completely twisted and the media was just pushing it out as if like oh my god this is look at all the heroism going on in ukraine if we don't save them we're the bad guys now one thing i wanted to cover well actually no there was another article talking about the nato stuff there was a piece that you know the i think it was the institute put out talking about how there's actually members of nato that would prefer to prolong the war and see more Ukrainians fight and die than have a quote unquote peace deal come too soon. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that myself and Will Porter wrote up pretty recently for the Libertarian Institute. And uh, we found this in a Washington Post article, the new, new section, they just, you know, they report it. And they say, uh, the sentence is something along the lines of, and this leads to the, you know, uncomfortable fact that for some uh, NATO members, uh, 
Ukrainians continuing fighting and dying is preferable for a peace that comes too soon or at too high a cost to Kiev. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's a, a striking omission. However, it's kind of what I've felt like the, this whole time, really since November, I've been very concerned that the U.S., you know, saw plan B as really plan A, right? That mm -hmm. they don't have to negotiate with Russia because they would be able to fight and bleed Russia to the last Ukrainian. And so, yeah, Russia will eventually win the war in Ukraine, no doubt about it. I don't, some people are saying that, you know, Putin is starting to lose and he's going to have to resort to nuclear weapons. I, I really don't think that we're, we're even in that level of dangerous territory uh, in the conflict of Ukraine. I don't think Putin would have to go to nudes. As the de, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, the U, this is the U.S. government that I'm talking here, uh, talked to Will Arkin uh, in Newsweek. And so you could go read this in Newsweek. And they say that straight up that Russia really hasn't deployed the bombers. They're not carpet bombing cities. They're waging a more or less limited campaign here. Now, look, I'm not saying that civilians aren't dying, that atrocities aren't being committed. And hell, look, if you know, you're in a situation where you've invaded uh, this country, right? And so the Ukrainian forces are firing their artillery and hitting civilians. The deaths are still on you because they wouldn't be in that firefight if you weren't co coming and invading their towns and they have every right to defend themselves. And so right. like, you know, that is a part of all this, but at the same time, um, the, the deaths aren't crazy, right? It's not like the U.S. shock and all campaign in Iraq and not that like everything you know compared to it should be compared to Iraq but even if you look at the early days of the Afghan war I mean there's not much coverage of this but the it was a bunch of Afghan warlords fighting each other the U.S. came in with heavy bombers and just started wiping out everybody on the front lines now I don't know how many civilians died but you know they killed an awful lot of people that weren't that had no Guam or issue at all with the United States, the Taliban weren't waging a war against the U.S. They were waging a war against the Northern Alliance, a bunch of warlords out in Afghanistan. And look, the, the Taliban are thuds too, and they're terrible to their women, but they were killing a bunch of warlords that were raping their boys. So the U.S. decided to come in and that they had to make the choice and that they killed a whole bunch of Afghans for it. Um, you know, they talked about like, especially early in the war, I think that the Taliban would like rally on hilltops and mountaintops or like higher elevations and things like that for their recruitment centers. Well, the U.S. had drones, so that didn't go too well for the Taliban. I mean, they really, they slaughtered their allies and you know, it's just, it's important to have some context here, right? I'm not saying right. this isn't to say that Russia isn't committing war crimes, that bad things aren't happening. Um, some of the more infamous things, like uh, the tank that ran over the car in Kiev, like on the second day of the war, uh, it's pretty clear that Russian forces had never made it that close to Kiev. So who was driving that tank probably wasn't a Russian. Uh, the missile that hit that building was likely an interceptor. Uh, they talked about a building that was a residential building that was, I think, 22 people died. Oh, hold on. Other uh, that think... got shot down that hit okay. that building. Sorry, and I so... was losing connection there. I, I... Oh, yeah. We're good. So you were saying uh, I, my, for the first time, my connection's actually being all wild, but I think it's good enough to keep going. Sorry. So you're saying that, yeah, the the missile, you were, it was probably more likely an intercept. 
or interceptor and it hit this building and about 20 people died oh no so then that was a separate i don't know if okay. anybody died when the missile hit the building okay then there was like a plane that was shot down and that hit um uh some and just dropping a bomb on a residential building or something like that uh so you know those are just some of the the things that are being reported just very biased right they're they're very anti-russia uh you know the mm -hmm. the media definitely wants to prevent this as some kind of slaw uh absolute slaughter which you know again according to the usdia that that's just not what's going on here you know you do have warfare in the world like what's going on right now uh in tigray ethiopia where it is almost a genocidal campaign where they're going in they're killing all the men they're raping the women they're attempting to displace everyone there's a famine going on and so look when you drive people from their villages when there's a famine that's a death sentence you're going to kill all the children anyone under five is going to drop dead and if you know if they happen to get the the food they need to survive the immediate malnutrition uh you know the 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 body, you know, has very serious consequences if you don't eat, eat what you need to as a child, right? right. And like everybody knows, that. I'm not saying anything controversial here. And that's what mm. that's happening in mass. But that's not what's happening in Ukraine. That's not the kind of warfare that um, Russia is waging at this point. I It really doesn't even seem that they're trying to overthrow the Ukrainian government. You know, they, they haven't like tried to target Zelensky with strikes or things like that. The guy's been out walking around cities and, yeah. uh, and so in photo ops. Right, right. They, you know, they say the goal is regime change. I don't know if that's the case. It seems like Russia isn't, you know, like the U.S. in uh, most of the wars it's waged. It isn't trying to just take out civilians. Now, during shock and all uh, at the initial Bush invasion of Iraq, they really didn't care. They killed a lot mm -hmm. of civilians. It just, right. you know, it flattened everything, right? That was a carpet bombing campaign. But if you look at, like, you know, what the U.S. warfare in the Middle East has been uh, since Libya, they've at least... You know they they don't try to hit the the civilian targets. They they try to hit the terror. They're bad at it. They yeah. kill a lot of civilians in the process. I'm not in any way trying to excuse the U.S. war state uh, for their crimes against people. I'm just trying to point out that there's different kinds of warfare in Russia, like the what the U.S. has tried to do uh, for like the past ten years in Iraq. They're not trying to flatten cities and kill everyone. They're trying to you know do more pinpoint strikes and everything like that. I guess I can't say ten years in Iraq. Probably five year since they last flattened the uh half a muzzle was probably the last mm -hmm. time they like really flattened a city to try to drive people out uh yeah. but since then it's you know targeted strikes they're trying to hit particular people uh and not cause widespread damage and that's also what russia is trying to do now the world bank is estimating this is going to cost ukraine like 45 percent of its uh gdp next year huge uh shrink um same belarus and moldova are also going to take massive hits the rest of Central Europe less so. Uh, they were saying Russia is going to take 11% hit, but I'm a little bit skeptical of that based on how the ruble is doing. And, and you know, they, they've been a little bit doom and gloom on the Russian economy and it hasn't played out so far. So it may remain skeptical of that. But the Ukrainian uh, financial ministry is saying that 270 billion in damage has been done so far. Uh, the World Bank says the war goes on. It's going to be 600 billion by the end of the year. These are massive consequences for the the Ukrainian economy. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're. I mean, just hearing those numbers, I don't think people really process like how much that is. And you know, hearing 45 percent of the of their GDP, like 
it, those are things that people really are not going to fully grasp until, you know, years down the road. If it even takes years, this at this rate, it might even just be in the next year or two that we start to see how devastating, you know, the toll is on these countries. But it, it makes me think, you know, in a twisted way, maybe some of the images and stuff that's coming out of Ukraine can kind of serve as an example for people of like, look, what we're seeing as the result of, you know, as you described, Russia is taking, it seems like a more tactical targeted approach which still is con you know, resulting in countless deaths of innocent people, which is, again, on Putin's hands. It's not like he's clean or innocent, but it does show the reality of you know, how accurate, quote unquote, and how pinpointed these, these strikes are. Um, one thing you know, I, I've been wondering since, because I hear constantly the, the talk of, oh, now Russia controls this city or they've, they've taken over this part of Ukraine. Do we know it really like what is what's the situation look like in these cities that are quote unquote controlled by Russia? Is it like they're just torturing and going through and just just, you know, killing a bunch of innocent people? Or is it life much different? Like what is the do we know what that looks like in a city that's controlled by the Russian powers? Yeah, so I guess there is like a, a few different things happening here, right? Like you have the the Donbass of Ukraine, which has been independent from Kiev and more or less. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, the, you know, Moscow calls them independent republics and things like that, but they're really not. They uh, they pretty much just go along with the, uh, what, what Moscow wants and are heavily supported, uh, both militarily and financially. The, the people there are granted Russian passports to travel abroad. Uh, they receive Russian welfare payments, things like that. Um, so, like, you know, there's some cities that have been controlled that are Ukrainian that have been controlled by Russia for eight years now. And, you know, the people there, I think, are happy to be under Russian control versus being under control of the Ukrainian government. That's why these people uh, remain separatists and add civil war with the Ukrainian government rather than, uh, you know, just asking to rejoin Ukraine, right? It's because they, they have that preference. And I could get into that a little bit more later. If you want but uh then you have other places like uh mariupol uh and some other eastern cities where there's been reported widespread destruction it's unclear exactly how many people are dying uh, i think the like one the government official from ukraine said ten thousand civilians died in mariupol it maybe but that seems very high i think the u.n total uh civilian death toll for the entire war uh includes uh is up over a thousand eleven hundred now mm -hmm. uh, eleven hundred so one thousand one hundred right yeah um uh but you know that that is like i think on, more on the confirmed end right they're not estimating that oh we think this many civilians were in this building on this day they're saying you know we pulled this many civilian bodies out of this building or something like that now there could be some questions as to who's a civilian or not and look you know, the Ukrainian government has talked about how they're having all their civilians build IEDs, throwing Molotov cocktails at tanks. And so when you throw a Molotov cocktail on a on tank that comes down your street, well, in one way, like, hell yeah, I think you're a civilian. Like, if you're throwing a Molotov cocktail from your own front yard, like, that doesn't mean that people just get to gun you down. Uh, you know, if you're someone's pulling up a tank from an evading force, at the same time, <laughs> it, it is, you know, it does portray a different situation than is the case where if the Russians are only shooting at people who are shooting back at them versus if they're just indiscriminately mowing down civilians and things like that. Um, there's been a couple reports of particular war crimes 
in Mariupol. Uh, the destruction of the Donetsk uh, theater is one of the most significant. Uh, the Russians say that this was a false flag perpetrated by uh, the uh, Azov Battalion, this group of ethno-nationalist neo-Nazis that are a uh, hundred or hundreds are so strong. that are, um, sorry about my dog uh, whining You're a good. little bit, but anyways, yeah, so, the, you know, the, the Azov Battalion is a part of the Ukrainian National Guard. They're neo-Nazis. Me and Will Porter wrote up a story about them. They posted a video on Twitter of themselves dipping bullets in pig lard uh, and to shoot at what they called Muslim lords. Like, these are, oh these are terrible, God. violent, racist kind of people. Uh, there were, in 2014, there was the case where, uh, you know, people as a battalion are C-14 types in Ukraine uh, burned alive 40 to, I think, 80 maybe, uh, protesters who were occupying. So imagine, like, you have a bunch of Black Lives Matter people in the U.S. They go and occupy a courthouse and a bunch of uh white supremacists come up and they set the prevent people from leaving you know that's the situation that you had in odessa in 2014 uh that's the kind of serious ethnic violence that you do have uh, occurring in ukraine and so russia says it was them that said that set off this bomb i think they claim that a thousand or maybe or so people might have died there i have no idea they have like it painted on the outside like children are here and things like that so mm. Look, it's possible that Russia bombed it just to be cruel. It's possible that Russia bombed it uh, in a mistake, uh, either because of incompetence or failed weapons. You know what I mean? It hit the thing that it wasn't supposed to. Hit. These kind of things right. do happen. Um, but it's a question mark. And honestly, uh, when you look at like where it occurred and how it occurred, it does seem uh, to be, uh, again, like just a little out of character for the kind of uh, war that Russia is trying to wage here. And so I, you know, there's still some skepticism there. And then there was a maternity hospital that was hit. Now, I don't think it was currently operating as a maternity hospital. Uh, there's reports maybe of one woman that was killed. Uh, I, there's the, the picture of a Ukrainian blogger who was like pregnant, who was there at the building, uh, who looks like, you know, she was at the site of a strike happening. Uh, it's possible that this was, it, it wasn't like a hospital that was a maternity hospital. Right. It was an office building. There's probably a lot of things going on there. Whether or not Russia, you know, knew that there were pregnant women in there and maybe they thought, well, we're going to take a shot at the Azov leadership because they're in the building anyways, or they didn't know and they hit it and ended up killing a woman. I, I do think that that Russia was behind that attack. And then there's another one, a bombing of a mosque in the city. And that is a potential false flag as well, I feel less confident that russia was behind that one just by the evidence presented and then now there's another like kind of category and that's like what happened in bucha and this is the city that's getting all the international mm -hmm. uh, notoriety right now this is an area in the uh i think they call it the kiev obelisk which i'm guessing just generally means like you know the suburbs around the city right mm -hmm. you know this is the capital of kiev like washington dc goes pretty far out into like fairfax county virginia now I think my guess is that that's kind of the situation here in Kiev where we're for people from Kiev they're probably not from Kiev but people who aren't from Kiev they, they might you know what I mean that's the mm -hmm. general area that they're yeah. in um and so 
There are reports of atrocities uh, being committed in that city, uh, rapes, torture, executions, and things like that. Now, there, Russia pulled out of that city on March 31st, and we know that because the mayor of the city released a video celebrating the Russian exit that, you know, the people of the city had driven, driven off the Russians, and it it was a very positive address. You mm. know, I don't speak Ukrainian, so maybe I'm really missing some nuance in all of it. But it, I, I don't know. I feel like cross-culturally, there's a way you talk about situations, even if it was a quote-unquote victory, if there's scores of people laying dead in the street that were tortured to death, it, it, the tone didn't seem to match that happening. The right. next day, the uh, New York Times uh, photographed... Um, as all battalion members in the streets of Bucha, and then the uh, allegations and dead bodies surfaced. And so who knows what happened mm -hmm. here? Uh, even the U.S. Uh, Pentagon says that they're just allegations at this point. There's no evidence to go one way or the other. And so that's the approach that I'm trying to take to. I, I'm pretty sure that's the approach that you find in that article. Uh, just, you know, the Russians were there. The Azov Battalion were there. Now people are dead. Somebody killed them. It's mm -hmm. a, it's terrible that they died. And, and some, you know, part you could blame it all on Putin anyways, because without the instability provided here, you know, even if the Azov Battalion is going in and killing people who are sympathetic to Russia, right? Like that's a that's a part of the allegations of, of what's happening in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Well, that wouldn't have happened, at least not likely, had Russia not invaded Ukraine in the first place. And so, right, like this. This is all the warfare caused by Putin, but, you know, just trying to break down the nuance again to it now. Sorry, I, I just don't want anybody to think I'm trying to repeat Russian talking points or anything like that, because I, I am absolutely disgusted by this war. I just want to make sure that I get it as right as possible. Right. No, exactly. And that's that's the worst part about everything that's, you know, how the U.S. government and a lot of the official spokes uh, people in the U.S. government treat anybody who has any semblance of nuance in the situation you know you say you say anything that's and they they describe it as sympathetic to putin but that's just simply acknowledging that war is not a clean break of like you know these are the good guys these are the bad guys this is who you support and this is who you hate and you know it's not it's not ever as that simple and the 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 biggest irony i was just talking to um quinn driggs on my last episode about this you know the irony is that the US has the gall to come out, you know, the people like George Bush, Obama, Condoleezza Rice, or any of the current administration coming out and condemning and saying, you know, invasion of a sovereign country is wrong, they're killing innocent civilians, they're committing war crimes, while at the same time, the US is still backing, you know, the Saudi Arabians war in Yemen, which, and we could maybe get into that later, if, if time permits, you know, there's some really crucial updates on that with the ceasefire and stuff. But the point being that, the US doesn't have clean hands either. They're guilty of the exact same war crimes that they're alleging on these other, you know, on Putin in this case. And to kind of, it, it's, you know, we could go into the details all day long about, you know, is it really Russia that was guilty of this one? Was it the Azov Battalion, which is another thing that I, I would like to get into, but um, all, all of this could be avoided if the US simply played the proper role of actually stepping into push for a peace deal. I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning, Tulsi Gabbard was just on Sean Hannity like a week or so ago saying, it's cruel that the US is giving this, really it's a false hope 
that Ukraine is going to win, ultimately win the war and Russia is going to lose the war. The only win that we're going to be able to, in, as far as I can see, and I think any rational person who follows these conflicts is going to be one of peace. Now, there have been peace talks, and um, I don't know, it does not seem to me that the U.S. has played a prominent role in any of the part of the peace talks. In fact, it seems the contrary, you know, with the billions of dollars they're sending in and the weapons that they're constantly flooding. Is there like, has the U.S. played any kind of role in the peace talks that's been pushing for peace? Yeah, can I just highlight that point on weapons first? And then I wrote down yeah. thoughts. And so I'm yeah. not going to forget to get to yeah. that next. But I think it's kind of important to tie these two things together, too. And so on the weapons shipments, and as Tulsi Gabbard pointed out, but more importantly, as uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski argued in 2014, the point of this is to give Ukraine weapons to bleed Russia's Russians on the streets of Ukraine. They want to give you uh, Ukrainians insurgency-style weapons, like the Javelin uh, shoulder-fired anti-tank missiles, uh, rounds of ammunition, the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, Mind you, a little bit of Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, this is what Hillary Clinton was saying uh, in the days leading up to Russia deciding to invade Ukraine, that this is what they wanted to do to draw Russia into fighting an insurgency. Uh, Scott Horton has pointed out that he's collected a lot of officials saying things like, well, we Hacking them. And so that's what we're going to do in Ukraine. And so, you know, we've uh, had uh, quite a bit of this uh, being discussed. And so, and look, they can send in the larger weapon shipments. They try to send in the S 300 anti uh, aircraft systems from Slovakia and instantly taken out, right? Because they're, they're the size, they had to be pulled by a military hauler. Right, they're they're easy targets. Even if they move the mid twenty nines into Ukraine, uh, the the Pentagon said that there was low upside to that. That the Russians would destroy them immediately the second that you know they enter Ukrainian airspace. They're Russian targets, mm -hmm. and uh, you know if they ever land, they ain't gonna take back off again. Right, that this is the situation uh, that that the Ukraine that we can get in smaller arms and things like that but it's not enough to actually you know change the dynamics of the war that russia could still win and if anything that the russians are only going to escalate because of this right they're not going to bat down and concede because ukraine is an existential issue for russia this is what russia has made clear all along and whether or not putin is right or wrong about that that is what he believes and that is what the russians believe that's what the russian government the kremlin is going to carry out is that uh, a policy that bats that ukraine is an existential security issue for russia look you know the the ukrainian border is not that far uh from the russian capital city it's you know there, there's not mountains in between uh kiev and moscow or anything like that and so you know, it's a security concern for them. And look what the U.S. has done as it's advanced NATO eastward. They've moved more and more weapons into these countries, provided more and more training. And as Ted Galen Carpenter wrote uh, for, I believe, Cato, right at the end of September, the U.S. was treating Ukraine as a de facto NATO member, uh, NATO state. They were, you know, providing all the training they would to Ukraine. They were saying we we're going to defend Ukraine's territorial integrity, which they actually had no plan to 
China doing, and that they were uh, going to provide Ukraine with weapons. And it was going to start off here, but long run, I think they were providing bigger weapons and Ukraine was developing some of its uh, own domestically produced missiles, uh, Neptune missiles with like a 600 mile range. I'm pretty sure it would put Moscow within range and also anti-ship missiles. And so there is a, a lot going on uh, on the weapon sales, but I, I guess the important thing is, as what you point out, that this isn't about changing the entire war or helping the Ukrainians win or anything like that. It's about hurting Russia and Ukraine, and, and that's the whole plan here. And I, a lot of me uh, suspects that it always has been. There's a RAND report from 2019 that describes how the U.S. could continue to weaken NATO or you, Russia, excuse me, and they follow that exact plan to a T, including uh, what they have done in Ukraine. Now, um, on the TOTS part, yeah, the U.S. has done nothing to facilitate TOTS whatsoever. And in fact, they've only pushed the, the two neutral uh, kind of mediating uh, countries to be more in line with the U.S. side. Turkey and Israel have both been the two countries that have kind of unique relationships here. Turkey is a NATO member state, but at the same time, hates what the U.S. is doing in Syria. They view the Syrian Kurds that the U.S. has provided billions of arms to as terrorists. They hate them like Americans hate al-Qaeda, right? That's that's the situation for Turkey. And so despite the fact that Turkey shot down a Russian fighter jet during the, the Syrian war, uh, Turkey has been defenses with Russia and has actually imported the Russian-made S-400 air defense system and was booted out the F-35 fighter jet project uh, that they were actually a part of the production line for and sanctioned by the Trump administration for buying the S-400. And so they're, they're the, you know, again, they have kind of a foot in each camp kind of thing. They've also sold their TB-2 armed drones to Ukraine. And so, the, you know, the, they've sold weapons to Ukraine. They've bought weapons from Russia. Israel has a massive uh, Russian and Ukrainian population. A lot of, you know, people who hold Israeli citizenship because of, you know, their heritage, culture, and religion and all that are from the former Soviet states, particularly Ukraine and Russia. And so they're, they they have long-standing ties and they don't want to see them kill each other, right? Zelensky is, I don't know if he's like a practicing uh, Jewish man or anything, but at least by heritage, I, I believe he is Jewish, right? And so yeah. um, those are the two states that have been meeting, but the U.S. is pushing. Uh, they've offered to transfer Patriot systems to Turkey to get them to transfer their S-400 systems to Ukraine. And that would absolutely blow up, you know, Turkey's role as mediator. They've pushed Israel to take more of a sign. They said, it's great that Israel is providing humanitarian aid and, you know, negotiating them a little bit, but we really need them to provide more assistance to Ukraine. And we know that means weapons, right? Uh, and then there's also Roman Abramovich off. I don't know. He's the guy that owns the Chelsea football team. He's a Russian uh, Israeli billionaire. And he's mm -hmm. actually been involved in mediating talks. Like he was at the talks. He has a relationship with both countries. They present him as a Putin, Putin puppet, but he's not. Whenever the war happened, he offered to sell the Chelsea football team and donate the proceeds to the victims of the war. And the, the UK sanctions on him actually interfered with that process. And that's why it hasn't gone through yet. There was a, case, a UK court case that tried to, I don't know if they were trying to sanction him, but they were basically labeling him as being like a Putin oligarch or a Putin puppet or something mm -hmm. like that. And the, the court in 2012 found that 
that just wasn't the case. And so now you have a situation where this guy is sanctioned by the UK and he's one of the few people that has actually done anything to get the Ukrainians and the Russians in the room together and talking. And no, he hasn't facilitated a deal yet, but that's going to take some time and a lot of negotiations. And the US hasn't been a party to any of it. And, you know, to, to get into this a little bit further as to how the US is actually setting bad thoughts even more, uh, we have a situation where in that same article we were talking about earlier about the, the peace potentially coming too soon for some NATO member states, they were saying that, look, Ukraine may be willing to make some territorial concessions on the Crimean Peninsula and in the Donbass. And, it, you know, you may feel that it's terrible that that is going to have to be territory that Kiev gives up. But if you look at the de facto situation in Ukraine, not on February 25th, but on February 23rd, and for the prior eight years, Crimea has been a part of Russia. Russia mm -hmm. has invested billions in the infrastructure of Ukraine, while the Ukrainian government has tried to deprive the Crimean Peninsula of water. There was a referendum held in the territory that said overwhelming majority of the people want to vo uh, join Russia. And when Russia took over the Crimean Peninsula, they didn't have to battle the Ukrainians to drive them out. They fired a couple mm -hmm. warning shots, but 50% of the Ukrainian forces stationed in Crimea chose to defect to the Russian side. And, and so, right like that that to me seems like that this is pretty solidly Russian territory. Yeah. The Donbass, again, the people there are now Russian passport holders. They receive Russian pensions. Um, now that territory is going to expand a little bit and has already. And I think uh, the Sea of Azov is going to go from a sea to essentially a Russian lake, right? <laughs> this is going to be uh, Russian proper. They're going to take the city of Mariupol and all the coastline uh, connecting the Crimean Peninsula and the Donbass region. So there is going to be some more territory ceded to Russia here. But in, in large, the Donbass for for eight years has been Russian territory as much as like South Ossetia has been in, in you know, Georgia and things like that. And, and so if Ukraine is willing to recognize this and that's what it takes to stop the bloodshed, then all the better, right? It's the de facto situation. It'll get recognized. And, you know, in the long run, maybe it could, you know, be the basis for the Western countries to start to lift sanctions on Russia that have been in place since 2014, as this is no longer contested territory. But that's not what they're saying. The UK foreign minister Liz Truss said that even if it's good enough uh, for Ukraine, it might not be good enough for us. And if it's not, we're not going to lift sanctions. And so if you're telling Russia that even if they come to a negotiated truce with Kiev, that they're not going to lift sanctions, well, that disincentivizes Russia from negotiating with Kiev. And, uh, you know, what the U.S. should be doing, at least in my view, is we should be taking the cards we have, this security concerns that Russia has because of the U.S. troop buildup on their border and looking to and telling Kiev and telling Zelensky, like, look, you could tell Russia that if they withdraw from all these areas, the U.S. will draw its aegis ashore missile defense systems in Poland and Romania. The importance of those systems are that the um, the missile launchers there could also hold Tomahawk missiles that could carry nuclear weapons. And so Russia sees this as, well, look, you could put cruise missiles in Ukraine that could carry, or not in Ukraine, in Romania that could carry nuclear weapons to Moscow in five minutes. This is an existential threat to us. And so the U.S. could leverage that and say, okay, we will remove those if you withdraw from this area.
right? Like, I don't care if those missile defense systems are in Poland. In fact, they're going to cost us millions of dollars this year. Better to cut it from the budget, right. get rid of them, right? Like, this is only helping Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, who, by the way, Raytheon is where the current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, worked before he became Secretary of Defense, go figure, yeah. uh, that they're one of the big profit makers in all this. Uh, or we could be talking about, you know, we, we won't carry out any joint military operations in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania within 100 miles of the Russian border. These are concessions that Russia is interested in, that Russia was bringing forward in their December security proposal to the United States and NATO when they were threatening to invade Ukraine if those concessions weren't made, right? And so now we could look at it and we could say, oh, well, they were actually really serious about invading Ukraine. And so to help out the Ukrainian government, we can now make these concessions that really aren't concessions. The Latvians come to Michigan all the time to train with the Michigan National Guard. It doesn't matter if you're if, if it's snowing in Eastern Europe or if it's snowing in Michigan, they'll find the train, they could tear, carry out the war games. They don't need to have these tanks running 60 miles from the Russian border. It's unnecessarily provocative. And this could bring a, a you know, renewed security balance and, uh, you know, long-term sustainable security situation to Eastern Europe that'll lead to prosperity. And they just won't even negotiate on any of it. It's all Russia has to concede. And now they're saying if any way Russia comes out ahead in any way that could be portrayed as a win, then that's even a worse situation because then they're going to say, oh, it shows any thug like Jin Chang Chi in China that, you know, the, the real plan here is that what you need to do is uh, invade Taiwan because the U.S. isn't, you know, that's going to be their mm -hmm. argument. And so they're going to put themselves in a position where they can never bat down and I, that that's a path to war yeah <laughs> man that's I, it's so just i'm trying to wrap my head around how to even put it the fact that like they the u.s makes this whole uproar about you know the deaths and the civilians that are you know the destruction and everything that's what they're portraying you know in front of the whole u.s public that's what like you, we've been saying you and i and you know our friends and family that's what they're being told to see but on the flip side, they're also reporting and talking about, you know, the strategic concerns and, you know, all the when it comes to upholding the U.S. empire and upholding the NATO, you know, alliance that which shouldn't even be it should have dissipated back when the USSR, you know, ended. But all these other conflicts, they openly will say, like, yeah, we don't care if if Russia, you know, makes the deal or whatever. We're still for other purposes that have nothing to do with Ukraine. We're going to uphold and move forward with sanctions with military, you know, tactical procedures. And it's, it really, for anyone who pays attention, it should just scream of red flag saying, what is the real goal of the US over here? What's the real, I mean, because, and I, we haven't gone into the history, and I haven't on my show before with my listeners, I just tell them to go listen to Scott's two hour lecture on the whole Ukraine Russia history, but it's essentially the US's fault. It's essentially, you know, what what they've been pushing for with the expansion of NATO and continually wanting to remain the, you know, the single power in the world. And then, you know, constantly making sure that Russia feels like you know, people see Russia as the potential for the next Hitler. And so we always have to keep them in control. And then, as you pointed out, the the um, arms manufacturers, I mean, they have a huge role in this in being able to sustain the war, keep it going, sell weapons to, to the, the warring sides. And then they're also 
as far as I am aware, they're also involved in some of the think tanks and the pieces that are written up and published as far as, you know, what are the strategic uh, plans moving forward. They're, they're involved in a lot of the U.S. policymaking, which, you know, is it's blatantly just not in the U.S.'s interest of safety and moving forward. Um, so it looks like we're coming up close to an hour. We don't have to come to a hard stop, but I did want to um, cover a little bit since we mentioned uh, some of the Azov Battalion and some of the neo-Nazi uh, influences that are going on in Ukraine. This is kind of a hard turn from a lot of what we've been talking about, but I want people to understand this so clearly because it sounds like I'm crazy when I try to tell people like, hey, you know that some of the points Putin made of denazification, it's not that he's just making this up. He's not just simply stealing the, the left wing's talking points of, of Nazis running amok. Like this is real in the history of Ukraine. It, what's the significance? Is, the, is it really, is there a prominent uh, presence of neo-Nazis and, and those like the white supremacists in the Ukrainian military and political um, sphere? Is that really something that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, so a, a little bit, right? Because this is a situation where it's not anywhere near the majority or even probably 1% total of like the Ukrainians taking up arms that have any kind of violent ethno-nationalist tendencies. Mm -hmm. That being said, there are some of these groups that do exist and it doesn't take a lot of them, to be quite honest. If you look at, you know, what's happened in other areas of the world, like Syria, whenever you pump weapons into a region, the most uh, foreign fighters, but uh, particularly those who are uh, ideological extremists, are the most radical, the most violent, and in the, the vacuum of power, they're the ones that, that gain the most influence. And so, you know, they become real issues in, in these countries. And so uh, when Zodomir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and first took power in 2019, he was trying to implement a peace agreement with Russia. And to do that, he needed these uh, Azov battalion uh, militants to stop fighting against Russian or the, the Donbass forces, you know, the Russian bad forces in the Donbass region. Mm -hmm. And what did they do? They told him to go to hell. Like you could actually see the video and Zelensky's going, I'm 41 years old. I'm the president. I'm not a loser. Anybody who has to say their age and I'm not a loser. I got, <laughs> I got bad news for you, buddy. But you know, it's, it's not the position of strength, right? It doesn't sound, sound like that at all. Uh, sorry. My dog is being extremely obnoxious today. You're so um, anyways, we have the, um, the Azov Battalion, right, actually being a real problem here and everything in Ukraine, particularly in the city of Mariupol along the Donbass. But again, they were fo uh, photographed in the Bucha region uh, just, uh, what, like a couple days after the Russian forces withdrew and then you had the evidence of war crimes and all of that. So, you know, th this is all really, really concerning here uh, that the Azov Battalion forces are there. Now, again, it's kind of like the U.S. war on terror, right, where mm -hmm. there are terrorists in Syria but that's kind of a fig leaf for why the U.S. is there. I really don't think that Putin's top concern is just eliminating the neo-Nazis. Right. Although, that being said, there are some there, and he probably would enjoy killing them. Just like, you know, the U.S. would like to kill the Al-Qaeda guys in Syria, but at the end of the mm -hmm. day, the real goal is to overthrow us out. Not that Russia wants to overthrow the Ukraine government, just right. that yeah. you know, they have different geopolitical goals. But I, I'm sure it sells well with the, you know, local population and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I guess... 
one of the things that I helped me to understand like the war on terror and everything so well was Ron Paul's what if speech, uh, where he talks about what if China was occupying the US, what would Americans do and everything like that. And the point of that speech wasn't to say that, you know, oh, this is a justification for what Osama bin Laden did on 9-11. No, he, he's trying to explain what happened and why how people react what the the like fundamental human nature is and if you occupy foreign lands and kill thousands hundreds of thousands of people including children you're going to you know provoke a, a violent you know push bad to you and so you know look at it the same way like a, a what if speech on the ukraine situation would be you know what if after the end of the cold war rather than the soviet union breaking apart nato fell apart and the warsaw pact expanded and the soviet union expanded right and so now uh france the uk and spain are all uh full-on members of the warsaw pact mexico and canada are prospective members uh, uh, there's, you know, violent revolutions going on in Texas and California, backed by Russian forces. And what do you think the Americans would do in that case? They would go absolutely ballistic. They would invade Mexico, right? And mm -hmm. that's not, again, not to justify what Putin is doing. I would be opposed to the American war in that case. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it it is kind of like, well, I do understand it a little bit better than what Russia, you know, the Soviets would have done in, in that scenario, right? This unnecessary buildup and leading to more war. And so that's, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, that, I think that's most of the point I wanted to make. Yeah. Oh, and, and then just to kind of seal that off too with, you know, imagine it the other way around where the U.S. was trying to take Mexico City or something like that. Even if the, the Soviets were the dominant military alliance on the entire planet, I'm pretty sure the Americans would make their forces known in their way known in Mexico City. It's just mm -hmm. too close. You know, the Soviets could continue to ship weapons, uh, you know, from Siberia down to Mexico's Pacific coast and, and try to flood in weapons and everything like that. But let me tell you something, it's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper and easier. And the American people are going to be a hell of a lot more interested in fighting that war than the Russian people are fighting against the Americans in Mexico and things like that. Mm -hmm. And don't tell me that if Soviet troops had like invaded Mexico and were stationed on the Mexican border and putting their, you know, missiles, cruise missiles there uh, that could carry nuclear weapons to Washington, D.C., the Americans would not be dropping nuclear bombs. I mean, the, those things would be going off a long time ago if the shoe was on the other foot here now i don't know maybe things would be a little bit different in a country that wasn't you know the world superpower or things like that but you know overall point being that you know imagine what if that the, the past 20 years uh you know particularly have gone the other way with nato expansion uh how americans preyed on this uh russia after the fall of the soviet union uh the communist leadership in that country you know the standard of living went down i'm a libertarian right the idea that the standard of living went down after the fall of communism in russia is just one of those facts that screws with my head every day mm -hmm. right like how could the people be worse off once prices came back and that's because the americans helped you know people loot the entire country and steal everything right yeah and I guess now all stolen, but you know, just corrupt people got their hands on all the means of productions and were able to do what they wanted with it. And so this is, uh, this is, yeah, this is what's happened over the past 30 years. And I'm, I would have, 
I, I would imagine it'd be a very, very tough message in the anti-war market to be like, guys, we really don't need to go to war in Mexico right now. I know you think it's a good idea, but our boys are going to be coming back in body bags, and this is going to be absolutely, they, they'd be calling me a traitor. Yeah. Right? I'd be probably arrested on the streets for protesting in that situation. And, and so, yeah, that's now what we're seeing in Russia. But Again, and this, this isn't like a big justification and say, oh, Putin's doing the right thing because, uh, you know, the Americans would do it in the opposite situation. It's just saying that this is a predictable policy of what happens when you encroach on another uh, country's key core security issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it really is just understanding each of the puzzle pieces so you know how to move forward, because if you don't understand what's even going on in the first place, like, you don't have to justify and say it's good, but you do need to understand what the, the context is so you can solve the, the issue moving forward. And that's why it's so infuriating, I think, for all of us in the anti-war movement where it's like we've seen and we've been watching the puzzle pieces coming together of like, hey, maybe this is this NATO expansion. Maybe that's a bad idea. These missiles and all these arms and troops moving closer to, to Russia, that might be a bad idea. And then so now we can see like, OK, well, Russia's clearly laid out what they what we need to do to de-escalate and the US just continues to do the literal opposite. Now, I guess to wrap up, the last question I would have for you is, do you think um, that despite all of what the US has been doing, you know, and their constant efforts moving forward on pushing greater arms deals and, you know, passing the Lend-Lease deal or renewing the Lend-Lease program and everything that they, it just doesn't seem like they're pushing for peace. But do you think that there is good reason to believe and hope that you know these peace deals will i guess overcome the the belligerent moves that this the us is taking do you think there's good reason to be hopeful that we could see an end to this this uh conflict and not enter world war three by the end of the year so yeah so i guess i think those are almost two different questions actually okay so uh, as far as ending the war in ukraine i do think that that's possible in uh, maybe not in a uh, you know, shake hands and everybody's good sense, but like in a Korean War kind of sense, right? Where there's right. at least like an armistice, uh, uh, you know, a new line of control and, you know, somewhat established borders. Um, my guess is that Russia, I, I think, has pretty limited interest in Ukraine and seizing territory. I think they really want the extended Donbass region and Crimea and maybe, maybe Odessa and the Black Sea coast. Mm -hmm. I think once Russia has that, they're going to uh, probably just push for a agreement that where Ukraine acknowledges that agrees not to join NATO and agrees not to import certain types of weapons and maybe has like limits and caps on its missile program and things like that, which, you know, some people are going to be like, well, it's a sovereign country and they should be able to do what they want. Well, that's, you know, fine and everything like that, but that is what's going to bring about an end to the war. And it's not like the U.S. doesn't like have caps on the amount of uh, the range of Iran's uh, missile program or uh, the amount like of energy that they're a uh, like nuclear energy fuel that they're amount allowed to produce and hold on to and things like that and so yeah it wouldn't be absurd to have you know or uh, internationally unfounded to have ukraine have to make these kind of concessions right countries do mm -hmm. have to do these kind of things um and so i do think it could end there but 
that doesn't unwind everything else that's been done. It doesn't unwind right. the sanctions. And I think the Biden administration has put themselves in a position uh, where they, they can't do that. Now, you know, there's always other factors. What happens in the French elections will be huge. Uh, I think Marine Le Pen is actually a little bit more interesting, kind of not fighting this war with Russia. I mean, she seems like a terrible, terrible woman. I would not want to be a French uh, citizen with her as leader mm -hmm. or Marcon really. But at the same time, if you're just looking at how her leadership would impact the war and conflict in Ukraine, I, I think that would be like probably a positive there. Uh, the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is relatively new. Uh, it's a broad reaching coalition. There's a lot of people in it that don't agree with him, but I think he more leans towards peace. It's important to remember that when the Ukrainian civil war initially broke out, it was France and Germany that broke the Minsk agreement with Ukraine and uh, uh, Russia that largely created the unsteady, unstable peace after some pretty intense fighting and, you know, 10,000 people dying pretty quickly in that war. And so all this stuff is, um, you know, just really important to know and uh, you know, to, to try to consider and figure out what's going to happen in the coming year. It, it could get a lot better. Maybe I'm being overly uh, pessimistic when I say that I don't think the, the tensions between the West and Russia will diffuse even if what happens in Ukraine does. But right. um, I, I honestly think I may be being a little bit over optimistic here. And I think that the West uh, Russia tensions are going to prolong the war in Ukraine quite a bit longer and potentially through the end of the year. However, you know, it, it, I guess it really depends. Maybe if Russia is able to shut down some of these weapons shipments and things like that, Ukraine will just have to agree to a truce and, and that's how we'll end up bringing uh, an end to this thing. And yeah, I, I do think Ukraine will be willing to agree to most of the things that Russia is offering. The West won't, but Ukraine will. Right. Yeah. And so, well, I guess hopefully moving forward, you know, people will keep these kind of escalations and everything that's happened in mind when they decide to go participate in whatever, you know, elections for their U.S. senators and representatives or the president. Just consider um, who we're putting into power. Like, is it somebody that has a history of supporting all of these, you know, aggressive actions or are we going to push for someone that's like, whether it's the Rand Paul on the right or Tulsi Gabbard on the left, just someone who's aware of, you know, the importance of keeping peace with nuclear powers. But anyway, Kyle, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate you coming on for an hour and, you know, helping my listeners get a basic rundown of, uh, you know, what's the situation looked like for the last two months. Um, where can people go to find your work? You mentioned at the beginning, but, you know, let's repeat it again and any other plugs that they can find you and, and get this important like day-to-day -day update on everything that's going on. Yeah. So I work, uh, I'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com. So if you want to check out the viewpoints there, uh, that's me. I do write for antiwar.com one day a week. Uh, I'm the news editor at the Libertarian Institute. So I write there every day and I put out the Conflicts of Interest podcast. Uh, most of my work is done with either Connor Freeman or Will Porter. Connor's on the show at least once a week. He's a writer at the Libertarian Institute. Will Porter is our assistant news ed editor at the Institute. He co-authors a lot of my articles with me. He's a serious newsman. I don't just say that because he has a mustache, but because he actually like 
knows how to write and cover the news in a way that's just not done in, in the mainstream press anymore, getting statements from all sides, making sure that you're not using biased language. If it's coming from the government, it's always what they claim. It's never what they're telling you is the truth, right? That mm -hmm. we, we make sure that, you know, we, we use the right words in our articles and things like that. Right now at the Institute, we're holding our spring fundraiser. So anybody who enjoyed the show uh, that wants to support my work and uh, help us to do more of what we're doing at the Institute head on over and donate you could get a copy of scott horton one of scott horton's books for a 50 dollars donation and even if you have one you could give somebody a copy of enough already uh there, there needs to be more of those in the world so go ahead donate uh there's matching funds right now starting today so if you go donate like 100 bucks today it instantly becomes 200 bucks that we're getting for the institute so that that kind of stuff is really huge for us and uh yeah thank you so much and again Apologies that my dog uh, had a, a few comments here. <laughs> That's all good. Um, do you want to plug any of your social media? It, uh, yeah, uh, on Twitter, I'm at con underscore in uh, the show is at con underscore interest. I'm at Kyle Ann's loan underscore. Uh, I I'm on the shows on Facebook, but I hate Facebook so much. They never show anything to anyone. I'll I, I, I put out articles that have more retweets on Twitter than I get impression Facebook impressions. Oh so my gosh. it's it's a complete mystery to me how to get anybody to pay attention to anything on Facebook. But on Twitter, you could definitely find me at Kyle under uh, Kyle Lanslone underscore. Awesome. Great. Well, Kyle, thank you so much and keep up the important work. Seriously, you, 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 Dave DeCamp and the other guys over there, seriously, the reason that I've even been able to get somewhat of a, an honest perspective of what's going on, because anywhere else you go, it's the same BS. So I'm hoping that everyone who watches the show and follows the work that I've been trying to expose them to goes and starts regularly listening to you guys because that's where it matters that's where we're going to actually you know hopefully be able to change people's perspectives and and get out of these sorts of situations so thank you everyone who made it to this point and actually you know committed uh hopefully that you can go back and re-listen to anything maybe that didn't make sense and more importantly just keep following kyle so uh, until next time have a wonderful evening and take care